Episode 114, Dennis Bernstein. How are you doing this fine morning? Doing great, Jay. We're doing an episode in season. It's great to talk to you this morning. It is amazing. We are, uh, we're, we're breezing right along here in the NHL season. Uh, the LA Kings are three games into their season. Big road trip uh, coming up, or they'll be wrapping up, I should say, this weekend. And uh, we'll talk more about that in the third period. But during the uh, second intermission today, we're going to have Glenn Murray. He of the former first-round draft pick and played over 1,000 games in the NHL. And today, Dennis, he is the... Well, he has been for quite some time, the director of player development for the L.A. Kings. So we'll bring in Muzz and uh, talk to him in the second period. Let's do it, Jay. All right. Before we get things going here, as always, let's get to the studio name. We are brought to you today from <laughs> beautiful Southern California. And Dennis, today we are recording this fine episode. Well, you have a choice. It's up to you. Would you like it to be the Miko Eloranta studio or would you like it to be the Sandy Moger studio? I went back and forth on this. I'm going to let you decide. Wow, that's a difficult play, Jay. You really put it to me this morning. Uh, I'll go with the uh, Miko Eloranta studio. Yeah, so Miko Eloranta was uh, part of the trade that brought Glenn Murray to the L.A. Kings. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole interesting, fascinating uh, trade tree, which we can talk about as well, uh, related to, to Glenn Murray. But Sandy Moger was another one of these interesting guys because... Right now, Dennis, I think it's a timely topic. The Kings could probably use someone like a Sandy Moger in his physical <laughs> presence in that lineup. And uh, he was one of those guys that played at a couple different stops with Glenn Murray. Um, and he was mm -hmm. also very briefly in Los Angeles as well. And you know that I love the obscure L.A. Kings. So uh, Miko Eloranta, if I remember correctly, he wore number 42 while playing in L.A. He was a defenseman, but that's not really who we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about Glenn Murray. So... Uh, let's just jump right into numerology, Dennis. And when it comes to numerology, it's interesting because Murray wore, do you remember what number Murray wore? I thought he wore 27. He did wear 27. And there were, or there have been, I should say, about 22 players um, that have worn wow. 20, 27 here in Los Angeles. And I'm going to go through a list of them, and then I want to circle back on one of them. So uh, Dan Maloney was the first guy that wore it back in 1974, according to the records. And then you had a number of different guys, including John Gibson, Brian McLaren, uh, you, of course, uh, had John Tonelli who wore that number. Mark Potvin wore that number. John Slaney wore that number. And I bring that up only because the other day on Twitter, we were talking about Lonnie Loach, which is uh, right. <laughs> talk about an obscure L.A. King. And I'd love to get him on the program um, just because he was around during that 92-93 season. Of course, sure. the Kings went to the finals and Barry Melrose loved bringing in all those plugs like, uh, uh, well, John Slaney. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and um, of course, you had uh, the guy who scored the big overtime goal in uh, in Gary Shuchuk in the playoffs as well. We've talked about that in the past. So love all those obscure kings from that sort of era there. But uh, after that, you had uh, Glenn Murray, who wore that number from 1997 to 2002. You also had uh, Bednar, who wore that number. Eric Rasmussen wore that number very briefly. Uh, you also had Joe Corvo, who wore that number. Scott Thornton, who went on to become a scout. Kyle Quincy. Uh, he was either a waiver wire pickup or they lost him in the waiver wire. I forget which one that was. There was like a whole Detroit. Where did he end up? Tampa? Mm-hmm. Something going on there? Yeah. Yeah. He wanted, he wound up going to Tampa, but I think he was a trade. Was he trade? Okay. Uh, there was, there was, was a lot of waiver activity during, during, there was around that during guy, those, yes. during those years. And, uh, <laughs> it might've been the same era when, when Dean traded for Cliff Ronning or something. Um, I, I forget. Uh, maybe my timeline is messed up a little bit, but, uh, here's one for you. After Kyle Quincy, Alexei Ponikarovsky, Pony, wore that oh, number. Yeah. Do you remember his stop in Los Angeles? Yeah, the Pony Express, I do. Yeah, he was here in 2011, <laughs> right, yeah. right before the Kings went on their Stanley Cup run the following year. So uh, good for Pony. He was, he was a funny guy. Of course, everybody remembers Alec Martinez wearing the number from 2012 to 2020. And most recently in Los Angeles, he now of the Ontario Reign, wearing 15 in the AHL, Dennis, in Ontario. Austin Wagner wore 27. We're not sure if he mm-hmm. ever received clearance from uh, Alec Martinez to wear that number. But <laughs> here's um, before I get to my John, uh, uh, John Gibson story, Alec Martinez, he wore 27 in Los Angeles. That was his most famous number. But do you? I'm, I'm all about trivia today, Dennis, in case you haven't noticed. Do you happen to remember or do you know the first number that Alec Martinez broke into the NHL wearing. No, I, I only associate him with 27. Okay, though. he wore number 53, which is a fun number. Right, going yes, history there. yes. And I could right. be wrong about this. I very well might be wrong about this, but in my brain, I rem- if I remember correctly, and maybe it was Jake Muzzin and I'm confusing him, but I think Martinez broke into the NHL. His first game was in Montreal, if I remember correctly. Uh, which is important because you're getting on a plane later today and you're headed up there. I'm heading up to Seattle, John. Oh, Montreal. Seattle. So, Why do I think you're going to Montreal yes. this weekend? <laughs> I am. I'm not this week. When, when the, I'm, I'm doing the because we're both real busy. Today. Yes. I am. Uh, I am going to do the Toronto, Montreal part of the King's trip when they go to Eastern Canada. I'm not going to go to Ottawa. I'm not going to Canada and driving 20 miles outside of Ottawa to go to that arena. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to be in the second week of November. I'm going to be flying to Toronto, catch that game, and then the next morning go to Montreal. Okay, so you're heading up to Seattle for their uh, for their season opener. Well, their, their, their opener, their home opener is what I'm trying to Their home opener, yeah. The word I'm that new, the, yeah, the Climate Pledge Arena. People are raving about that arena. So see, we were up there for the expansion draft. We're going to go back up and uh, fly up tonight on Friday night and uh, attend the game tomorrow and then fly back Sunday morning and uh, hit Rams and Lions. Okay, so I, w- I just looked it up while, while we were talking here, and I was incorrect. He did not make his NHL debut against Montreal. What I was confusing that with, he made his NHL debut the year before, Alec Martinez, played four games, spent, went back to the American League, played in Manchester. When he was called up mm-hmm. November 24th of the following season – that's when he made his season debut with Montreal, Got and it. he basically stuck the rest of that entire year. So I stand Got corrected. It. He did have a cup of coffee the season before, and technically speaking, Alec Martinez, for those that are keeping score at home, he made his NHL debut against the then Phoenix Coyotes, and he played Phoenix, Calgary, Detroit, and San Jose, his four-game cup of coffee uh, during the 2009-2010 season. But that's not the odd stuff that I wanted to talk about today, DB. When I was going through the list 
there of the players who have worn number 27. You might have heard a name that jogged your brain a second. You said, what, what, who is he talking about? Yes, I said the name John Gibson. That, yes. Okay, so <laughs> let me just tell you here. And this very easily could have been and maybe should have been the name of the studio today because if you want to talk about obscure L.A. Kings and with a tie-in here to Southern California and all the fun jokes between Daryl Sutter and and John Gibson, of course, now the, right, the right. goalie, uh, the world's greatest goalie of the Anaheim Ducks. Yes. <laughs> uh, back in 1979, when the entry draft was about 40 rounds, in the fourth round, <laughs> the L.A. Kings selected uh, out of St. Catharines, Ontario, which is a famous tie to the L.A. Kings as well. But they drafted in the fourth round of the 1979 draft John Gibson, who was a defenseman, a left shot defenseman. Uh, he played in the OHA, the, uh, which is kind of like the OHL back then. And mm -hmm. eventually he made it to the L.A. Kings. And Dennis, although he only played uh, 48 games in the NHL, the majority of them not being in Los Angeles, in 1980-81 season, he played four games for the L.A. Kings. And then the following year, he played six games for the L.A. Kings. He also spent time all over the map in the uh, the AHL. He played in Cincinnati. He played in New Haven. Uh, he played in the CHL. Uh, in Houston and uh, Birmingham. He played all over the place. Wow. Uh, 48 games. He, his last NHL stop was with the Winnipeg Jets, the original Winnipeg Jets. Uh, he was there for 11 games. And he finished with the Flint Spirits in 86-87 of the IHL. And Dennis, I can tie this all back <laughs> together too because the Flint Spirits, which are now the Flint Firebirds, and coming up on November right. 5th, you have the new team that's going to be announced in Palm Springs. Everybody believes it's, or I believe, I should say, and several others, perhaps. Uh, it's going to be the Coachella Valley Firebirds. But that's not mm -hmm. the point. John Gibson did it. There was a John Gibson that was a <laughs> member of the Kings. And I wish I would have looked this up previously and talked to Daryl Sutter about it. Because knowing Sutter, who knows everybody and is somehow connected, it's like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Sutter yes. probably knows John Gibson somehow. They probably played together <laughs> or or... His, his his cousin married his wife. Right. Like something, there's something there, Dennis. I know it. It's a huge Sutter tree in the NHL. So yeah, I, I think that uh, you're onto something for sure. Okay. Well, speaking of trees, before we bring in uh, Glenn Murray, before we bring in Muzz, and, and I can't wait to talk to him because there should be a lot of stories. We're gonna have a we're gonna have a follow up question for him regarding the surfing story. If you remember, we've had <laughs> Rob Blake yes. on and Nelson Emerson, and the three of them took a very infamous surfing trip to uh, uh, San Onofre, and, which is in South Orange County, for those that don't know, pretty much close to the border of uh, San Diego County. But anyway, right. uh, they took a very fa infamous surfing trip, and we've heard two of the three versions of what went down on that trip, <laughs> and now it's time to get the third version, the third and final version. That's the real reason we booked him, Dennis. We tricked him and told yeah. him we wanted to talk about King's prospects and player <laughs> development, and, of course, about his long career. He played a 1,000 games, uh, when the truth is we just wanted to talk about uh, what happened to Nelly on that trip? So we'll get into that. But, um, you know, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, uh, Kelly Cheeseman was on the program recently talking about Jersey rabbit holes with me. But, man, if you want to go down a rabbit hole, start looking at the trades that brought Glenn Murray uh, to Los Angeles mm -hmm. and sort of the subsequent trades because right. it gets really confusing between Glenn Crazy. Murray, Rick Tockett, Kevin Stevens, and Luke. <laughs> At, at any given time, one of them was being traded to or from three teams, basically. The L.A. Kings, the Pittsburgh Penguins, and the Penguins, Boston Bruins. Yeah. Boston Bruins, <laughs> and the, yeah. it's just It was always one of them just sort of being traded around, and it was it's bizarre because uh, they all spent time with those teams. And um, 
at one point, I, I don't even think that all four of them may have been on the same team at the same time, because I think Murray would have missed out on Steven's brief time in L.A., but m- maybe somewhere along mm-hmm. the way they were all on the same team. But uh, what, what a wild time there in the late 90s with some – Dennis, we had really good hockey trades back then. We don't we don't see yes, a lot of those – we don't have them anymore. No. Big-name hockey – like, what's the last no. big-name hockey trade – and I don't even count the uh, don't 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 give me the the Pierre Luc Dubois trade because that was like eh, all right like I what was the last good like was it Shea Weber and uh, PK yeah was that like the, Shea, the last Shea big one PK. yeah because most of them are, are like rentals or, or like a like a, I don't know like uh, Seth Jones right I mean it, it's not big name for big name so we don't have we we don't have them anymore and you're right about Dubois for Lane like. They're good starts to their careers, but they were, what, two or three years into their careers. So, no, we don't really get that anymore, John. You're right. I mean, like, you go back into that time that time period, 1994, and then on for the, the rest of that yeah. decade. I mean, McSorley going to Pittsburgh for McEachern and Tom, Tomas Sandstrom. I mean, that's a, that was a huge trade. And then later, yeah. the Bruins um, acquiring Kevin Stevens and Sean McEachern for Glenn Murray and Brian Smolinski. I mean, that's just sure. fantastic right there. That's a, that's a good trade right there. It's a good hockey trade. You had Rick Tockett at one point acquired by the Bruins for Kevin Stevens. That was a deal with the LA Kings. And then Luke for Kevin Stevens, the Kings and, yeah. and the Rangers. I mean, that was fantastic. You also had Kevin Stevens being acquired by the Bruins with Pittsburgh getting Glenn Murray and Brian Smolinski. So, I mean, these trades are all over the place. You had Glenn Murray being acquired by the Kings for Eddie Olchek, uh, who yeah. ended up in Pittsburgh over that. And, of course, the big trade, if you want to call it that, uh, Glenn Murray and uh, Joseph Stumple that Boston acquired in exchange for Jason Allison and the aforementioned Nico Elaranta. That was a big trade at the time. The Kings really needed to add, uh, yeah. and, and getting Jason Allison was a big deal at that time. This is the it's usually, John, when, when a big-name player goes, because of the, first of all, there's no salary cap back then, so I think that affected it. Right? Yeah, you're but, right. Yeah, now, it's, now it's usually like... Big name player for futures. Yeah, right. It's not. It's not that big one for one. And yeah, it's part of it. But I, I think that certainly the salary cap impacts that, and why you don't see it as much anymore. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That probably is the, the number one reason there. Yeah. Because back then, it, it was just trading away like drunken sailors, right? So there was a lot of fun times. <laughs> but, uh, all right, look. Let's get to the other side of the break. We have Glenn Murray coming in. We'll talk all about his career uh, with multiple stops there. Some of those trades, perhaps, and we'll also talk about player development. Some of the big names of the LA Kings pipeline. We'll be back after the break with Glenn Murray. Welcome back, second period, and we are pleased to be joined now by Glenn Murray from the LA Kings Development Department, and uh, we'll talk about his playing career, and we'll talk about the prospects, a whole bunch of good stuff, but uh, Muzz, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks, thanks very much. 
Well, it's been uh, it's been a chore to try to get you on. We tried to have you on last season, and I guess the schedules just didn't line up. We needed to have you on, though, for a variety of reasons. But first and foremost, we have to get to it right out of the gate. There seems to be a great debate going on between General Manager Rob Blake and Nelson Emerson, Director of Player Personnel. I think that's his title this week. But uh, those two seem to have a different version of the story about a surfing trip to San Onofre many, many years ago where uh, I guess in the opening minute, your board broke, uh, broke a nose. So give us your version of the story. It's Nelson's fault. That was my version. <laughs> it's we Nelson's went, fault. That was, that, was, that was, yeah, that's years ago. And uh, Nelson will blame me all day long, every day. And Rob just pleads the fifth. Uh, but it's his own fault. <laughs> it was his own board. He said, he says it's my board. It was his own board. He went underwater. That he came up. The board hit him in the face, broke his nose, had to go to the hospital. That's that's the short version of it. Yeah. And then he's yelling at me, and and then there's blood in the water, and I'm like, I think you probably should get out of the water. Or <laughs> you know, for, you know, standing over. I don't know if you know, you have to paddle way out there. So sure. I think I was like, no, I think you should go in now. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if there's sharks around, but you should probably go in right now. And he's like, it's my fault. And I was like, uh, anyway, it's, it's, that's the short version. We could, we could talk about hours about that one. Yeah, and, and Nelly seems to take exception to the fact that basically he was left at that point, that you guys just left him and that he had to go and handle everything on his own. You guys were too busy catching waves. Is that true? Or, or were you a good friend and you, you know, comforted him in his time of need? Unfortunately, that part is true. <laughs> we let him take himself. There's a hospital really close to San Onofre, so it was like, you know, by the time he went to go get stitched up and come back, we were ready to leave. So it was, uh, it was, it, it was perfect. We didn't know he needed to go hold his hand. He was, he, he knew what he had to do. Okay. Yet he's still whining about it all these years later. So. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Ask him about the story that when he ran his board over with his truck. <laughs> okay, I will. Uh, I'll have to make note of that one. Um, I- I'm actually surprised we are recording this early in the morning, and uh, I-, I figured that you wouldn't be good for an interview until at least after 10 a.m. I thought you'd be out catching some waves early in the morning. Not this morning for you, John. Well, uh, I skip that stuff. Early morning stuff. Okay. So it's, uh, yeah. Well, thank no you. Problem at all. I'll make I'll make up time with that. That's okay. No problem. All right. Good. Well, that's too bad then because I was picturing you doing this interview wearing a wetsuit. So I guess that's that's. <laughs> I wish I was. <laughs> that's yeah, I would have taken a selfie. I would have called a selfie of myself if, uh, if I was. Ah, oh, that would have been a fantastic promo picture coming up on the podcast later today, Glenn Murray, and you would have been in a wetsuit. But anyway, um, let's talk about your playing career a little bit, just to kind of set the table, being that this is your first time on the pod and. Uh, You were a first-round draft pick of the Boston Bruins, and I bring that up only because the Kings, with their highly-rated prospect pool right now, you guys are having to manage through these guys that are taken in the first round or even taken early in the second round and the expectations that come with them and not rushing them in and things like that. And so what I think is interesting about the the management group is you guys all have your own sort of unique story that you can share and that you can relate to some of these guys. Do you ever connect with some of the kids on, hey, former first-round pick to former first-round pick, you know, on, on that level? Well, I think it's, it's it, you know, many, many years ago when I was, uh, when I when I started. And these these kids, they, I don't, we don't necessarily say that, but we, we kind of make them understand that we've gone through these situations. It's it's not easy. It's not easy to play in the NHL. It's, it's, it's a hard, it takes a lot of patience and time. Yes, there are players that, jump right into the league and have their superstars. But very rarely does that happen every year. Like maybe two people or three players that are, you know, bonafide superstars. So it's, it's, 
to try to teach them and help them along the way, patience, and it's going to take some time. They look at us with like five heads. So it's, it's kind of trying to get through to that part that they want to, you know, kids nowadays, they want to rush right into making $10 million a year. And it's not that easy. It's not that easy. So it's, we have a great group around here that we all work together. And uh, these kids, have, you know, they, they trust us. <clears throat> they, we, we, we make them understand it's, it's, it's not easy. Well, Muzz, I'm in a hurry to make $10 million too. So if there's a fast track to doing that, let's, let's all sign up for that. I'm sure you could use, use a few yeah, as well. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah, and I think that when I, when I look at this, like I was just responding to somebody on Twitter the other day and they were saying, you know, oh, I, I, I'm really, you know, I'm upset or whatever the word was that, you know, Turcotte's the only player in the top 10 from that draft class that hasn't played an NHL game yet. And I'm like, well, hold on. First of all, pump the brakes because every situation is unique, right? Because the worse that an NHL team is, the more likely they are. And I mean, the worse off they are at that particular moment, like in the standings and where that, what their projections are. The worse off that a team is at a particular time, the more likely they are to rush that kid in if they don't have solid development and they need the help at the NHL level. But there's always more to every story. And I look at Turcotte and I go, look at the number of games that he actually played each of the three seasons, each of the last three seasons. He hasn't played a lot of hockey, so the best thing for him would be to play at the AHL level this year, get as much, get as many minutes as possible. Um, that's my sort of high-level take on the situation. How would you respond to that? You know, I, I, I agree with it. Every player has a different timeline. Mm-hmm. And yes, these players that are, that are in his draft class are playing and, and, and this and that. And Every player, you have to be very patient because he needs to play. You're right. He needs to play. He's had a few injuries. He's just getting accustomed. Last year was a very different year during COVID and playing games here at TSC and and not really, you know, there was only 30 or 40 games. So it's this is this kind of like real, you're going to have a real season. You're going to play 70 games. You're going to get accustomed to the travel. You're going to get accustomed to the, you know, living on your own. So it's every player has a different timeline. So his timeline is just a little slower and that's fine. We, we love him as a player. His commitment to... Uh, making a, working on his game and, and working on his game on and off the ice. Not worried about him at all. We, we Jared Stoll has done a great job working with him and, and continues to work with him. And uh, yeah, we, we lots of patience and we're looking forward to um, him, him making the next step. Yeah, and I think the other thing to remember there with a player like that, again, because they each have their own journey, is playing in college. He's playing fewer games as well. So if you get a player that has, he only had one year of college hockey, which is a shortened season even, you know, regardless of the injury, he had a shortened season there compared to kids who play maybe two or three years uh, in junior hockey where they play a much larger schedule. So um, you also made a few stops along the way, and I'm wondering if that sort of uh, journey is also part of the story that gets shared with some of the kids. You know, it's not always a linear path to get there. You're drafted in the first round by the Bruins. You start with the Bruins. Then you spend some time in Pittsburgh, obviously spent uh, several years in L.A. as well. And then you go back to Boston, which is, I'm guessing maybe that was a good thing for you and that you were able to get closure. I don't Is that the right word? Maybe a lot of people don't get that. When they when they get traded, they don't get to go back home and and, you know, rewrite history. Did you feel that way in a sense? Yeah, I was lucky. I mean, I was lucky enough to go back to, you know, I loved every stop that I played in Pittsburgh, LA and Boston and, and lucky enough to go back to Boston and, and really kind of lucky enough to play with a player like, you know, I played with Thornton. So I was, we just kind of like it, hit it off really well. And, but yeah, it takes, it took some time it, for myself. It took three, four years to actually feel like I belonged in NHL. So kind of talk about those sort of stories and, 
you know, being traded, going to another city and, you know, finding a place to live and, and, and all those different things and getting your, I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but getting your car shipped, getting, you know, all these different things that go on with, with off the ice stuff kind of for these kids to come in. They're so young now and it's different because there wasn't a lot of young players playing back when I was playing, mm-hmm. but nowadays, and that's how it is. So we try to help them with everything and make them be able to come to the rink and focus on their game and, and, and use their, all their ability to, on the ice. And, and so it's a, it's a work in progress. <laughs> when, when did it click for you? Because if you, if you just look at the stats in your career, it looks like, mm-hmm. you know, halfway through, if you will, that it really started to click. You look at the time that you were in, in, uh, in Pittsburgh, for example, in your, you know, fourth or fifth season, you know, you're putting up 14 goals, 11 goals, but then you look at the latter half of your career, the 44 goal season, 92 points when you were there in Boston, but also, you know, 32 goals, 28 goals. You had, of course, 29 in LA, but it, it, it was like a slow burn. It took you a while to get there. When did you put it all together? Because it's more than just playing with other players. You had to make a change in your career as well. Yeah, I think it was just, uh, you know, I think it was when I got traded to Pittsburgh, I was only there for two years and then got traded to L.A. But I think what I can remember, what I feel is when I got to Pittsburgh and, you know, we had all these great players there and we had an unbelievable team. Um, I felt like just when I got there that I could, you know what, I belong in the league I had a role in the team, and obviously I wasn't only there for two years, but um, yeah, it just kind of clicked. Uh, my off-ice program was better; like I was, I was younger, but you know, getting traded and then kind of, I was just—it was when I got to Pittsburgh, I felt like I, I could, I belonged to the league, and and I had to, uh, and I get more playing time. I, you know, my num- the numbers weren't great, but I could, I had a role in that team, and I, and I, and I got some ice time. Now, uh, it, I mean, there's there would be many things to talk about during your uh, during your stop in L.A. Uh, one of them, of course, being that uh, Smolensky, Stumpel, uh, you guys started your careers out in Boston. Uh, separate deals sort of all reunited you in, in L.A. Um, I would imagine that had to be a, a little bit weird, right? Just in the sense that it doesn't always work out that way. But uh, some of your former teammates, you guys end up reuniting in Los Angeles. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's funny how things work out. Uh, uh, it's just, you know, lucky enough to play with both those guys in Boston while Smolenski when we first started when we were younger and he came from college and I came from Stumpel both places and uh, yeah we're, we're lucky enough that we, we still have great relationships and uh, you know one lives in Europe and one lives in uh, Michigan now but uh, yeah great great friendships uh, that we made early on in our careers and uh, it's, it's always nice to, to play with other guys that you play with other teams so all right, so shoot Smoke a text for me today then because we'd like to get him on the podcast and uh, reminisce a little bit about some of those early sure, Staples Center's Kings definitely. games. Uh, yeah, yeah there, was, there was a lot of fun back in those days, uh, in the early days of Staples Center. Um, Tomas Sandstrom, you know, not that you uh, would have played with him. Uh, it was you know kind of before your time there, but Tomas Sandstrom and Patrick Waugh had a, a very interesting run in during the playoffs where uh, I'm not sure if you've ever seen the clip, but Waugh kind of uh, winks at him uh, and, and Sandstrom, you know, after he stoned him, but you seem to own Patrick Waugh in the 2001 playoffs. Is that kind of a highlight of, of your career? I wouldn't, I don't know about owned. He's probably like, <laughs> in my, my mind, he's, he's, I would say he's number one A or B with him and Broder being the best goal he's ever played, but from, from doing Meyer and even maybe the whole, uh, the history of the game, but I, I don't know, just maybe that was a lucky series. And I did play with Thomas Sandstrom in Pittsburgh, and him and I have a close relationship. And the brain is a, is a great person. He's a, he's a great he's a great person, uh, Thomas Sandstrom. I, uh, we played together and sat together and drove together to the games in Pittsburgh. 
Well, then I am absolutely ashamed. I didn't. I didn't put the two timelines together there. Uh, I also try to block out the time that Sandstrom uh, was in Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, and don't mean that directed towards you, but. No, no. Tomas Sandstrom is an L.A. King, and uh, he, he is, in my opinion, just to kind of derail this conversation a moment, in my opinion, he is the most underrated player in L.A. King's history. I think that people uh, really should go back and take a look, especially in 91, that series against Edmonton where Craig Muni broke his leg and he came back and played. Just He was an absolute warrior. We use that word very loosely in, in sports, but he was a true warrior on the ice, and I kick myself every day because... Uh, in, well, it's been about five years ago now, you know, they had that outdoor game up in, uh, Bakersfield and Bakersfield. Yeah. yeah. And he played in that alumni game and I was just so excited to, you know, I kind of fanboyed out for a minute there. I, I was so excited to just talk to him in the locker room that day and whatever, and never even bothered to do an interview with him, which is just the strangest thing ever because cool. I will interview anybody, but, uh, we never have had a Sandstrom interview either on Mayor's Manor, nor have we had him on the podcast. So now I've given you homework assignment number two. Can you please text him also or yeah, email him? He, he is, uh, just a quick story about him. I played with him in Pittsburgh. We hit it off right away. And I sat next to him in the locker room. And Mario was coming back that year, my first year there. And he, Mario, requested to play with him. He only would play with him on his right wing, Thomas Sandstrom. He's, wow. he's a good player. Yeah, he's a Because he would always get the puck to Mario. Because the best players always want the puck, and when Mario gave it to him, he shot it. Yeah, pretty simple, right? When you play with a great <laughs> player, give him the puck, and then when he gives it back, you shoot it. And Thomas was like, "Well, that's easy." <laughs> but Mario liked to play with him. <laughs> that's fantastic. That is absolutely fantastic. Uh, let's wrap up the sort of portion of the conversation related to your career. Obviously, we have to touch on the the ankle a little bit. Uh, talk about the ankle injury. When you reflect on it now, and you sort of think about it, how did it? I guess, ultimately impact your career, impact your life. I think there was the special boot that you were wearing as well. Just uh, what are some of the memories related to the injury and just how that, you know, had you turn right instead of turn left in life? Yeah, it was just, it was just you know, wear and tear on the, on the ankle. Had a few surgeries on it, basically, in a, the short version and, and had to retire because of it. But that's, you know, a lot of players have to retire because of different things and different injuries and different circumstances. And it was, you know, it, it was not perfect but uh that's how things go sometimes and i've dealt with it and uh you know that's that's part of being in pro sports right yeah for sure now the journey into management for some people it's very well thought out they knew even before their playing days or early in their playing days that was their eventual sort of destination that's what they wanted to do other people they just sort of happened to fall into it by circumstance or accident um when, when you think about where you are today was there any sort of forethought put into this is kind of the direction I wanted to go? Or at one point, were you thinking about coaching? At one point, were you thinking about something different, you know, altogether selling insurance? I don't know. Uh, when, when you think about it, how, what do you think about, you know, being at this point in the journey? Yeah, no, I think what happened was this one, you know, I, I, I always knew I would uh, live here when I was done in, in California. I love the West Coast, even though all our family lives in the East Coast. It's kind of strange, but we love the West Coast. And, uh, just kind of like I, I know Nelson Emerson and Michael Connell, and I know them, you know, obviously fairly well. And they were, they had just started up the kind of development program with Dean here in LA, and there was the two of them and Mike Donnelly, and uh, they just they knew I was, they left me alone for a little bit, but they called me and asked me if I'd like to join them, and I said, well, just let me give me a couple assignments, and I kind of did different things, and and I really kind of loved it. And uh, I had a really, I, I, you know, I had Michael Connell. I've known him for years. He's, I've had him in every situation in hockey. And then Nelson obviously played with him and, and a friendship with him and Mike Donnelly. And it just kind of hit off. You know, I think you have to, 
when you're in development, all teams do it now, and you have a big staff, you have to have a good relationship with, uh, you have to have a great relationship with the development staff. You can't be one guy not like the other. That you're, you're all going for the certain goal for these players to make the team better and make the players better. So we just hit it off, and it's just the way we went. OC has been such a, a I don't know if figurehead's the right word, but he's been such a fixture uh, in the development program for so long now. How odd is it? Have you caught yourself at any time this, this season or maybe over the last couple of months just been like, hey, I need to talk to OC. Oh, wait, he's not here. Like, is, has that happened? All the time. And you know what? The funny thing is I, I call him anyway. And we talk. <laughs> we have a close relationship, as does Nelson and Mike Donnelly. I had OC was my coach in the minors. He was my coach in the NHL, assistant GM, GM. I had, I've had him everywhere. So him and I have a real close relationship. And, you know, and he's always, he's, his phone's always on. You can talk to him about anything. So we, we still talk. I mean, not like as much as before because he was with us and here. Mm-hmm. But we still talk like quite often. So good relationship, great, great man, and uh, nothing but respect for uh, OC. All right, so let's jump all over the board here and talk about some of the players. And, and I want to ask you about Grons before I forget, because from my understanding, the plan with Grons uh, coming into this season is that he, he's going to be kept to a limited schedule, whatever that number is, maybe 40, maybe 50 games-ish, a limited schedule because they want to ramp up you guys, want to ramp up his development time just because you haven't had time to work with him. He hasn't, he's not somebody like some of the other kids that's been involved in a couple development camps and been here and whatnot. So um, it's going to be a good mix of development time this year, extensive development time, and then, of course, practice and playing with the Ontario Reign. Is that uh, a fair account of what the plan is for Grands? That's very fair. We, we're lucky enough to have, you know, our obviously our minor league team and, and all your listeners know the minor league team here in TSC and, and, the, and their big club, and then we go to Ontario for games. And and we also are very lucky to have uh, Sean O'Donnell back green who have great careers and know how to, you know, play defense and Grons is a very lucky uh, young man because he's going to have full access to these two guys full time. Um, and yeah, that's how we, that's how we have it planned out. We, you know, he's coming from Sweden and he's a young player. He's a very good player. Um, but we don't want to speed him into just throwing him into playing 25 minutes a night. He's, we really have to work with him in, in the fundamentals of understanding the pro game. So we are, you know, baby steps with him. When he's uh, obviously he's going to play games for sure, um, and depending on injuries, we got lots of players. He uh, he's going to have some real uh, one-on-one and uh, development with uh, Matt Green and Sean O'Donnell. So we're very fortunate. He's lucky. He's a, all he does. He wants to learn. His English is good. He understands where he's at in his game, and we have a we have a great prospect here in Helgate, and, and he's a. Uh, He's really just looking forward to loves talking to these guys and going over video and he's uh we're we're very excited about him. Now Muzz, don't agree with me just for the sake of agreeing with me, but when we were over in Arizona at the rookie faceoff tournament, uh I don't remember exactly right now, I'd have to check my notes, but there was one game in particular where I thought he was the best player in the game. Like that's how good he was. He wasn't just here playing minutes. He was he was basically outshining everybody else. Would you agree with that? 100% agree. I think we talked about that. I can't remember which game it was. Uh, it doesn't matter. But I remember talking to Greeny and Odie about it, and they were like, oh, this guy is yeah. like, he's the best player out there. And and there's lots of other players, too. I'm just saying, but he stood out because he's six foot three or six foot four and long and, and uh, right shot defenseman. So 
he's uh, it was he's and he was quite good in the Arizona game and the NHL preseason game too. So he was uh, he's he's opened our eyes for sure. We knew he was a good player, but he's raw. And uh, you know, people these young players don't understand uh, when you're playing in the American League, it's a good league. It's mm-hmm. a very good league, and there's veteran players in every team that are playing for their jobs, and you know they they they're going to play hard every night. So it's. Uh, we're, we're, it's, it's a work in progress. Yeah. That was probably one of the most uh, difficult things uh, to explain to fans, some fans, not all of them, um, last season, though, about the difficulty of the American League. Because for years, right, we've been talking about the Kings having the best prospect pool and they're just adding more to it with Byfield. And then all these kids are finally going to turn pro and they're going to play in the, uh, you know, in the AHL for the Ontario Reign. People, I think, had this, these expectations. They were going to come into the league and just blow people out, eight nothing every night. And obviously they got off to such a rough start. And it's like, hey, guys, pump the brakes. These are first-year players playing against bigger, faster, stronger, you know, men in many cases. And... Uh, th- and as, as some of the players eventually started talking about, oh, wow, I'm now playing against guys that are fighting for a paycheck that, you know, has to pay the mortgage for their family. So it's a, it is a very tough league, especially when you're 18, 19 years old. Uh, did you have to have, I'm assuming you had to have some of those conversations with some of those kids early on last year when, you know, they might've been, uh, a, a little bit depressed about the way things started out. No, of course. And we tried to prep them and get them ready for it, but they don't listen to you because they don't believe it. <laughs> so then you start, then they start playing four or five games and they're like, Oh, now I know what they're talking about. Right. So it's, it's really, and, and this year will be different too, because there'll be more veteran players on each team. <clears throat> yes. The Pacific division, it's a great division and uh, there'll be more veteran players. It's going to be harder to travel. You're going to travel a little more. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, it's the whole package of being a, you know, a pro hockey player and keeping yourself in the best possible shape and the best possible, you know, preparing yourself for the games and, it's a whole thing of learning that. And uh, we have, you know, lots of work to do, but we have lots of players and, and lots of competition. Yeah, I was I was very intrigued of uh, something Mikey Anderson said a few days back. He was saying that this season is going to be like his second rookie season. And when he first said it, I didn't know where he was going. And then he, you know, kind of explained it and was like, yeah, that makes sense that, you know, he only played seven teams last year. So now to go into these Eastern Conference buildings and, and the travel and all that sort of stuff. And of course, then I started linking it up to Ontario and what you were just saying that it's almost like going to be a second rookie season for, you know, Turcotte and all these other guys, Madden, et cetera, who they were sheltered last year. They played all of their home games, basically, or well, their home games, they played at TSPC and then, you know, they played a couple road games, but they didn't, they didn't have that travel back and forth to the barn out there in Ontario to play the games. And they didn't, they didn't do the post-game interviews and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was, a, it was a different year and it was a shorter year uh, last year. So it will be interesting this year. Um, what about the relationship with Robo? Like, Here's a new guy coming in. You guys are all fa- fairly well established and have great relationships, and you've you've known these guys. There's longevity, you know. Whether it's you and Greener O'Donnell, you know, even Blakey Emerson, all these guys. There's a long history there. Robo came in completely from the outside. Nobody really knew him, you know, from Adam. How do you how how did you go about developing a relationship with him? You know, last year, it was real easy. I think uh, myself and Richard Seeley, him and we we hit it off really well. I think uh, he he's an easy guy to talk to. He's he loves the game. He loves the young players. Um, and and it was just like a lots of talking and understanding his thoughts of the game and, and and seeing where we're coming from. He loves the development side. He understands it. He knows that it has to be done because it's it's a different you know him coming from the development team. They're all great players and. Uh, 
I knew a little bit about him from from uh, him being at the development team. One of uh, one of the dads, his son played on the team, and I kind of knew him, and he had nothing but praise to say about him. Loves the game, passionate about the game, and wants to make these young players uh, the the best they can be. And it's it's been I love it. I love the relationship with him. He's he's been nothing but awesome to to us in development. The communication is great. You know, I, we, we give him a program of what we're doing, like, let's say, with Helgi or Kapari or Herkot or whatever. And he, we always include him. And it's, and it's having, that, uh, having that communication is, is very key. All right, so give me some dirt on Robo here because it seems almost too perfect. This guy comes in. I had some reservations about him. I have tremendous respect for Mike Stuthers, which is one of my, my favorite people in, in the entire world of hockey. I'd put him in the top three. That's the type of respect that I have for Stutz. So I, I had a lot of reservations about Robo. Uh, then sort of getting to know him, talking to him, seems like a great guy, very easy to talk with, the things that you're saying. He does a great job of explaining things when you have questions. He doesn't talk in a lot of just, you know, coach speak and, 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 and cliches. He'll, he'll really break stuff down and educate you and inform you. Um, seems like a cool guy, has a good taste in music, likes some good bands, has, of course, that green Jeep that he, you know, trolls around uh, the South Bay. And, like, come on, this is, and he has that great flow. Well, we were talking to Todd McClellan the other day about his hair, uh, like, Come on, give me some dirt on Robo. There has to be something. He can't be this perfect. I don't know for sure, but I'm I'm willing to bet that he could never stand up on a surfboard. I don't know if like <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen him in the water. Maybe he's scared of the water because of the sharks. Okay, he can't be scared of the water. The green jeep. You can't be scared of anything if you're going to drive around <laughs> right? down in a green, green jeep. So I'm willing to bet that he is. He probably either won't go in the water. Or he, he doesn't go in because he can't. All right. So, well, you can ask him that. Yeah, time. the gauntlet has been has been laid down. Uh, I heard uh, Todd was telling me that they were playing some beach tennis, that that was the thing that they had uh, had been doing. So, I don't know. Do you play beach tennis? I haven't played with them because that's the coaching. The coaching staff of both both teams have this big beach tennis thing going on. So, okay. Um, I'm not sure who's who's ranked the highest, but I think maybe we'll have to get a game with the development staff against yeah. one of the coaching staff to see how who uh, who comes out on. Well, I'm all about rankings, so yes, please let's rank them. Uh, that would be fantastic. We don't have to do that now. We can do that the next time out. You can you can scout that out for me. Uh, let's let's wrap up with what's coming up here uh, in a couple of months. The World Junior Championship, one of my favorite times of the year, and I'm curious because I'm always intrigued um, about how different people in different roles sort of watch that tournament. So, when you're watching the World Juniors, are you? I'm imagining that you're watching more of the players that have already been drafted. You don't need to scout. Other people are doing that. Um, but do you find yourself at times sort of drifting away from watching whoever, you know, whatever King's prospect is in that game and drifting over towards noticing some of the other players and being like, wow, that guy's pretty good. I hope that we draft him. Yeah, I kind of, it kind of does. I kind of do. I get there's certain games that, you know, obviously I love watching our guys and them raising their level, our drafted players raising the level of their game. Like already in Turk last year, they raised their level to an unbelievable level. Mm-hmm. Um, I love seeing that. And then you kind of take notice sometimes with other teams' players and just put it in the back of your mind and be like, wow, this kid really raised his level too. And then you kind of look, you kind of watch all kinds of sorts of things. You know, like it's it's the best. I love the World Junior Championships. I think it's awesome. These young kids that can, the pressure, mm-hmm. first of all, the pressure that they're under, and then the levels that they can get to is it's incredible how they raise the level of all under all that pressure playing for their country and they they just like it's it's incredible to see these 
you know, 17, 18 year olds playing in, 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 in against the best players in the world at their at their age at that time. So it's it's I love it. I love it. And it should be another fantastic year for the Kings. You know, they've had about uh, 10 prospects or so each of the last couple of years, and this year should be the same thing. So it should be a, a loaded a loaded tournament. I'm going to leave you with uh, a third homework assignment. I like things grouped in threes. I gave you two homework assignments earlier. Do you remember what they are, by the way? This is going to be a quiz right now. Do you remember what those two were? Okay, so I need dirt on Robo. Oh, that I was the third get... one. That, yeah, but you gave me no. that. Okay, I gave you that. So i got to get Thomas Sandstrom yeah. for you on the podcast. Yep. And, I mean... The other one, and I know you didn't ask me to do this, but I know Matt Green has never been on. So that, that was my Matt third Green. one. <laughs> oh, that's your third one. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna get to it. Yes, so you, you're very well aware of the fact that Greener won't I come on. Attention. I pay attention, John. I pay attention. <laughs> I don't know if I've said this on the air before or not, but uh, yeah, Greener, Greener threw me for a loop um, a few months back because I saw him and I was like, hey, when are you know what's up? When are we going to get you on the podcast? And he goes, you know, the best thing about being retired. I don't have to talk to anybody that I don't want to anymore <laughs> or something to that effect. I don't have to talk to media, whatever he said. Um, so yeah, uh, we need to get Matt Green on the program. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give him some softballs. We'll, we, you know, we're not going to go too hard on him. You've had a good time here today, right? Yeah, no, it's perfect. I'll, I'll, I'll work on him. I'll right. massage him for you. I'll massage him for you. I appreciate that, Muzz. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Had a great time talking about your career, talking about the kids. Uh, I think we're going to have to get you back on, though, and, and, and talk more about the rankings of the beach tennis uh, guys. Yeah, for sure. Any, anytime you want. Anytime. I'll have to I'll have to scout it out first and make sure that my, my development guys can uh, play, and then I'll, I'll let you know. <laughs> I appreciate it. There you go. Glenn Murray, we'll be back after the break to talk more about that. Welcome back to the third period of Kings of the Podcast with DB and the Mayor. All right, third period. Welcome back, Kings of the Podcast. And uh, DB, that was yeah. such a fun interview. I don't even fun. know where to start because uh, he <laughs> offered up so many so many golden nuggets there. I mean, first of all, he's going to get his homework assignments done. And he's going to work on uh, Matt Green, who has been a little bit of a challenge. So that in and of itself made the whole interview worth it. Okay, I will offer up Glenn Murray a steak dinner on us or me if he does deliver Matt Green, because I think that's, that's, I think basically an undeliverable guess, but uh, go at it, Muzz. Like, try your best. The stakes up if you get him. Yeah, that would be absolutely unbelievable. Um, and not only do we need to owe him a steak dinner if he can get Matt Green, but I'm waiting for the rankings for the beach tennis. I want to know what's <laughs> going on there. And uh, I mean, hey, the gauntlet has been thrown down. I'm sure that Robo is going to have to come on the program to retort sure. the, uh, that, you know, the comment there that he basically is, well, he's afraid. He's a chicken. I don't know what the word is, but he's, uh, he doesn't want to get out there on the surfboard. He doesn't want to get in the water. So uh, that, that, that sounds like a challenge to me. So I think that uh, we're going to have to get to the flip side of that one as well. Hey, before we wrap up on Glenn Murray, I just want to give you a quick trivia note because these type of things are always fun. 
uh, we didn't have time to get to it during the interview, but he has a high school hockey tournament that is named after him back uh, in Nova Scotia and an really? arena, the Glen Murray Arena, which I think is pretty phenomenal. So um, at that tournament's been going on for like 15 years. I think it's so cool when you go back into these little Canadian towns and like the arena's named after them sure. or, you know, and things like that. I mean, obviously Marcel Dion was a big name and, you know, he has an of arena, course. but uh, Luke has like a trophy named after him in the Quebec league. There's just all these little nuggets that um, a lot of hockey fans don't know. So we like to bring them, uh, we like to bring them to light. We're going to wrap up today's program DB with uh, some Twitter questions that we received recently. But before we get to that, let's just very briefly talk about what's ahead for the LA Kings this weekend. Three yeah. games in four nights. I did tweet out on Thursday. From what I've gathered, the Kings do not plan on calling anybody up. That is interesting to me because they are only carrying one extra forward right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you have Leas Anderson and Double uh, A on IR. Neither of them are expected to join during the trip. And Brendan Lemieux is in the uh, non-roster protocol uh, category, and he's not expected back. So they're only carrying one extra forward. Three games in four nights. We're going to have to see how this thing plays out, DB. Yeah, for sure. Um... They need some wins here, John. This is look. I know it's game four, five, and six, but this is a really good measuring stick because of the type of teams they're playing. Dallas is a big defense. St. Louis has started well, so I'm really, really intrigued to see what happens over the next four four days because they're playing what they're playing Friday night, then they play Saturday, and then unusually they don't play Sunday probably because the NFL doesn't go Monday. But to me, it's it's you'll start seeing what this team's about on these three games. Yeah, I don't unfortunately have a lot of notes on the uh, the Dallas matchup, which is taking place on Friday, other than the fact that Dallas is all in. They're in win mode now. So they think yep. that they are a Stanley Cup contender and they expect to be a challenger in that tough central division. couple of notes, though, that are interesting on the uh, St. Louis game. Uh, first of all, the game on Saturday is the Blues home opener. So that mm -hmm. you have that going. Uh, the Blues are also going to wear their Heritage jerseys. So the Kings will see them yep. in two different jerseys because they're playing them back to back. So the Blues will wear, wear their Heritage jersey. And this is interesting, Dennis, because this series in St. Louis of the back-to-back -back games playing, played on Saturday and Monday, this is like a throwback to last year where they were right. playing all those two-game series. Did you know this is the only time the Kings will play the same team on the road back-to-back -back this season? And the only other time this year that they will play a team back-to-back -back in the same building will be at home at the end of March. They have two games uh, against the Seattle Kraken. So did you know right. that? No, I didn't know that. I, I, I knew it wasn't as much. Like, I knew that we were going back to normal schedules, but I didn't know they had two back-to-backs with the same teams in the same building this season. Yeah, so one road back-to-back uh, -back and mm -hmm. one home back-to-back. -back. A few other quick notes. Brandon Saad is going to be out of the game on Saturday due to protocol. And uh, Buchnevich, who they had acquired, he's been suspended and he will not be available uh, as well. And it's I, you have to wonder if Kyle Clifford's going to get into this game because he has not been in the lineup. Uh, yeah. They've been looking at some of their younger kids like Jake Neighbors. Just mm -hmm. a quick note on him. Uh, if I was looking up, I remembered writing something about him. I went back to the 2020 Kings draft preview that I did. And uh, this is what I had said at the time. I said, if he was a better skater, he'd be a top 15 pick. Uh, he gives the team everything they need. He competes, uh, plays hard, smart offensively, generates offense, plays the game with the physical component that you need uh, and you don't see much of anymore. He's an excellent passer, knows how to move the puck through traffic, and uh, we believe he's definitely in consideration for the Kings at 35. That never happened because the Blues took him at 26. Yeah. So that's uh, interesting how those things sort of play out. So very curious to see if uh, old friend uh, Kyle Clifford can get into the lineup here as the as the Blues continue to look at some of their young players over these first five or ten games. 
Uh, any other follow-up notes on those two before we get to Twitter, DB? Those well, yeah. three, three games? You know, with the Blues, it's funny. Remember how Vladimir Tarasenko was going to leave town and he was definitely going to get traded, and now he's fully engaged, scoring goals, and they're 3-0 and out of the box. I mean, he's been fantastic for them. So it's funny how things change, John, you know, over. And same thing with Kuznetsov in Washington. Like, people said he was tired of Zach. He's going to get traded. Backstrom's out. Now they're 3-0 and 1. So it's funny how things change in a very short course of time. That Blues roster uh, has uh, just a real breadth of experience when you look at it, not only yeah. with O'Reilly and some of those other guys. They, they could be a sneaky good team. Yes. I know people aren't talking about them as much as some of the other teams. Chicago was one of the darlings coming in, and they've fallen on hard times. Um, I saw Nick Alberga tweeted last night also, uh, is their coach in trouble of being fired? And, you know, of course, we talked about it on the program, I think, a few weeks ago. He, he's at the top of my list of the uh, coaches that could be fired here the first part of the season. Yeah, him and uh, Dom Ducharme in Montreal, since you can't really. It's very difficult to start in Montreal 0-5, John, and keep your job. <laughs> uh, well, all you have to do is just keep having press conferences. And I, I didn't watch the whole thing, but what a strange press conference where I felt like Bergevin really didn't say much of anything. At least I didn't right. think that he did. Um, he said, you know, <laughs> the funniest quote to me was the part where he said, he doesn't think that the team's play uh, the team is, is being affected by his contract status. And I was thinking, yeah, of course they're like, that's the weirdest thing ever. Can you, I mean, yeah. how do you link those two things together? Your GM is in the final year of his contract and therefore the team is not playing well. Like I, I just didn't understand the, the correlation there. There isn't any, John. That's about the GM being, it's about an ego from a GM. But John, did, you didn't see what, after the game last night, the Carolina Hurricanes Twitter account? Uh, well, I, I had heard, I didn't, I didn't see it, okay. but I heard that they were on fire again. Uh, okay. you know, so let me give you the, the quick story. So sure. they tweeted a link. It said, did the Habs lose.com and you click on it and there's Sebastian Ajo and he's, uh, pointing down and saying yes. And it points down to a promo for t-shirts. And they, they showed three T-shirts, two Ajo T-shirts and a Kakanyemi T-shirt because Ajo scored twice and KK scored twice. And the code for the discount is WE, O-U-I, which is, yes, in French. <laughs> well, at least the code wasn't offer sheet. Yeah. <laughs> savagery, savagery, John. Savagery by the Carolina Hurricanes. Right. It is one of those things where I think in Carolina they love it and in Montreal they hate it. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. And, and the rest of the league, my guess is, just sort of falls either somewhere in the middle or it depends on where you stand. Like if you if you appreciate good social media snark, then you yeah. like it. And if you want to fall on the, you know, old school traditionalist side of the coin, then you're going to hate it. But my comment to those people would be, why are you even on Twitter? Because, right. because that is not old school traditional reporting. You have to, sure. <laughs> you have to work your way through the snark. And at right. some point you have to... I think it's kind of tip your hat to them, right? Even, oh, if, totally. even if your team wouldn't do that, the creativity and the, the level of energy and effort that they're putting into it, you right. at least have to applaud that, Dennis. Right. It's friggin' funny, A. And B, it's great because the team like is saying, the manager is saying, no, no, there's nothing going on. And then, bang, the Twitter account is just savaging the, the Canadians. So, yeah, I think it was great, and I think we need more of it. I want to know what else they had in the chamber, right? Because if they can right. fire off those type of tweets and promos <laughs> and everything, like, you know, quickly after a game, 
what else did they have? And, you know, they probably been working on it all week, just oh, uh, sure. getting ready and, you right. know, preparing for all different possible scenarios. For uh, sure. I, I can relate to that. Heading into the draft, I had several different scenarios <laughs> for different ways the Kings could go. So I know all about that preparation uh, lead, leading into a big event. Uh, we're going to get to Twitter real quickly, though, Dennis. I do want to mention the Ontario Reign. They're playing a pair mm-hmm. of games this weekend as well um, at home. It is the battle for first place after just a couple of games, Dennis. You have the yeah. 2-0-1 Ontario Reign taking on the 2-0 Bakersfield Condors uh, at the garage tonight in Ontario. And well, uh, the winner you know, could essentially take over first place in the Pacific Division. And then, as if they're not tired of them already after just a few short games <laughs> into the season, the Reign and the San Diego Gulls are going to hook up again on Saturday night, the best rivalry in the American Hockey League. And... Um, I'm sure that Robo is already sick of the San Diego goals. <laughs> I'm sure he is, John. But he'll get to see them plenty more, uh, plenty more this season. Let's uh, let's take a look at some of the Twitter questions in this. We'll wrap up today's program with these. There, there were a number of uh, different replies. Uh, first of all, people absolutely loved the latest from the photo shoot. Uh, of course. With, uh, I, I thought that the first response was fantastic. Stephen Nelson, his, yes, yes. his question, of course, was, uh, is this photo available uh, for sale in a frame? So we need to get that up on the store. <laughs> Uh, how many arty parties will will we celebrate this season? Um, I'll hang up and listen. He's such a great guy. He's great. Uh, how many arty parties? Well, look, the first arty party will will be the most important uh, because it could perhaps buy him some more time in the lineup, Dennis. Like I said earlier, they only have one extra forward on the trip. You want to commit to the kids. You mm-hmm. want to get them playing time. He is probably the most ready of that group with Byfield being stuck on the sidelines. Uh, but DB... People are already starting to talk. They they don't like what they're seeing uh, out of Arthur Kaliev after just a couple of games. And the play the kids movement seems to now be swinging to send him back to the American League. Patience is wearing thin already in L.A., D.B. They played three games, John. Yeah, that's, that, that's all I'll say. They, they've played three games against, you know, well, look, uh, they, they should have beaten Nashville. Right? They, mm-hmm. they need to beat a team like that. But they played three games, John. That's why people were talking about their power play in a while. The power play is converted to 37.5%, right? Well, I'm talking about trends. I'm like, well, what trend in one game? Like, come on. So three games, give the guy a chance to breathe. If we get, look, let's get to 10 or 12 games, John, and then let's assess what's going on. And that really was going to be my comment is that you have to give a player a larger sample size. You have to give them 10 games. Um, These are also players that haven't played together. And sometimes chemistry it is very automatic or, you know, instantaneously. You put two guys on the ice. I always think back to Ryan Smith and Andre Kopitar. I mean, the bromance that existed five minutes into them being on the ice together mm-hmm. was amazing. And you just see that with certain players. And I don't know why, but from the outside looking in, Velarde and, and Kaliev don't seem to have that chemistry yeah. yet. Will yeah. they get it? I don't know. Uh, but I'm not ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as no. they say, after just a couple of games. Like you said, give them, give them 10, give them 12 games and see what's going on. Um, and we'll have to see if there are some lineup changes uh, going into at least, you know, line combination changes uh, t- tonight, or if uh, Todd's going to stick with with the same group. That that will come out after this episode has uh, been recorded. Uh, get Moving along with the questions here, Dennis, how far away is it before we see some of the young, the young guys start knocking on the door for a top six role? And then there was some commentary. Sure, it's fun to see the old core Kopitar and Dowdy produce offensively, but we need to see some of the new young uh, guys on the team start to become successful. I'm going to say, Dennis, you will see that in the second half of this year, you should start to see some guys pushing, but it's too early at this point to put those expectations on guys. Look what happened with Velarde last year. Right. He's the most talented player skill wise in the Kings pipeline, 
struggled last year and, you know, really hasn't found his footing yet this year. So it takes time, people. These guys don't just come into the league and take over and become superstars. The days of uh, Timu Solani coming in and scoring 800 goals in his first season, <laughs> those days just don't exist anymore, Dennis. Yeah, and, and I think when you look at the lineup, John, there's no room on the first line. That's going to be Brown, Arvidsson, and Kopitar. So if you're talking about elevating players to the, to the top six, that's the second line. So you're talking about the wingers. You're talking about can somebody take the place of an Ayafalo or a, or a Kempe? I think that's the opportunity. But I agree with you. It's not going to be in the first 25 to 30 games. You're going to play the veteran players, I think, yeah. without question. And you and to take the job of Ayafalo, I think you have to outwork him. It's not about outscoring yeah. him. It's about outworking him. And very few guys are going to outwork Alex Ayafalo at this no. point. So – to your point, Dennis, it's probably the the uh, I was going to say Andre Kopitar. It's the number nine. It's uh, it's the job of Adrian Kempe that if you're looking for a young forward to come in and take a job, that that's the spot in the lineup. Sure. That you were that you're going to have to wrestle from him, and you know Kempe has really changed his game over the last year to the point that uh, McClellan has a lot of confidence in him and is able to use him as sort of a Swiss Army knife and play him at all three forward positions. So someone's really going to have to come in and start right. lighting it up if they plan on taking that. And I would go so far as to say this, DB, I don't necessarily think that you need one of those guys this season or even next season to take one of those top six roles. Mm -hmm. If they can produce on the third line, right. now the Kings have something because yes. they've been a one-line team for several years. The reason they went out and signed to know was to give them a second line. If, if these kids can mm -hmm. come in and create a third line. Correct. Wow. I think that would be amazing. Let's not worry about top six. Let's worry about top nine. Yeah. Well, based on the first three games, they're still a one-line team. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, well, Gano has done some some outstanding things defensively. Uh, but, yes, you, you would hope for a little mm -hmm. more production out of out of the wingers that he's getting there. That's why I think that you need to get Kachev back on that line, uh, which that's something I tweeted about the other day. Sure. Uh, let's see. With Wolanin gone and Clay – this is the next question. I'm sorry. Moving right along. With Wolanin gone, he was picked up on waivers from the uh, by the Sabres, and Clegg not waiver exempt. Who is the next defensive prospect to be brought up? And would they shy away from bringing Clegg up knowing that they could lose him if they send him back down? Let me just clarify this one real quickly for people. Since he has already cleared waivers, they have a little buffer. When you call that player up, in this case, Kale Clegg, and it could be Austin Strand, which I'll talk about in a minute. When you call up a player that has already cleared waivers, as long as he doesn't play 10 games or stay on the NHL roster for 30 days, you can send him back down. Yeah, right which is very helpful. So if oh, something, I mean, right. I mean, so, so to this point, they're, they're not worried about losing Clegg if they need him in the short term. So if there was a short term injury or something happened, or maybe they just wanted to get a different look, they didn't like what they were seeing defensively, even if they, you know, put Mata in, however that would happen. If they wanted to call somebody up though, the point is they can call up Clegg. And if it wasn't Clegg, the other option at this point would be Austin Strand. Right. I think mm -hmm. those two are a step ahead of Sean Dursey on sort of the pecking order. At this point, uh, if either of those two players were called up, like I said, they can play a couple of games, be on the roster for a couple of weeks, and then you can send them back down and they don't require waivers, Dennis. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's a great point because people don't realize that that's, that's uh, a big positive for this team. That they And I agree. So it, the need is there for those two players. It's definitely in the short term. Yeah, because if there was some sort of a, a longer term situation where either of those players extended beyond those those limits that I just mentioned, now you do risk losing them if you sent them back down. And putting players on waivers in season, Dennis, is a totally different ball game versus putting them on waivers at the beginning of the season when there's 
you know, a glut of so right. many players going down sure. to the American League, but with different injuries and different things that happen, uh, it, it, it could be a different story. And then also, Dennis, we should also mention, because people uh, wonder how the waiver wire works, it's been moved to 11 a.m. this year. It's traditionally been at 9 a.m. Pacific. It's now 11. So players go on waivers at 11. 24 hours later, they clear or they're announced as being picked up. Uh, but for the first month of the season, the league uses the order, reverse order of standings from last season. Last season, right, right. And then the current standings kick in uh, here in a couple of weeks. So that's that's the the order right now. I, the Kings are like in the top five, if I remember correctly, yes. um, for, for picking up. And Seattle slotted in where they, I think, like third. Third, yeah. Yeah, third. So that's the, the, the reverse uh, order there, if you're wondering. Okay, next question. Did you have anything else to add there, D, before I move on? No, Jay, keep going. Okay, I, feel like, I feel like we're doing the lightning round here. Um, <laughs> next question. When Double A and Leah Anderson are healthy, who do you see getting sent down? And who of the prospects uh, that are up now do you see staying? And then there's a second part to this. Will Cheese make sure that Kings of the Podcast team is played at every home game? That should be... <laughs> uh, that should be... Oh, and should there be major line changes or what? So first of all, yes, go ahead and tweet Kelly Cheeseman. He's at AEG Sports Cheese. Let him know that you love hearing, uh, which he was tagged in this tweet, so he's already seen it. But uh, you love hearing the Kings of the Podcast theme. Uh, DB, I'll let you take this first one here. When AA and and or uh, Leah Sanderson are healthy again, who do you see being sent down from the current roster? Um, I, Well, Kapari's waiver exempt, even though they want to see him on the wings. I think Kapari... Could be one. I think that the two wingers on the fourth line, Kapari and Grunstrom, although eh, was, was Grunstrom now waiver exempt too? Because he no, hasn't been. Grunstrom requires waivers. Yeah. So I, I th- so I think it's, look, Kachev doesn't, but you, you didn't bring in Kachev to play in the AHL. So I think you're looking at uh, either one of the two wingers on the, on the fourth line at this point. Yeah. Uh, I would say. Well, first off, I would again point out that they have an open spot on the roster right, right now. So right, they, exactly. Now, but you also have to add Lemieux in there as well. So if you want to think of that as being Lemieux's roster spot, then mm-hmm. now we're back to square one, that when when Leas or when AA becomes healthy and they have to get back into the lineup, you're, the two exempt guys would be Kaliev and Kapari. And if you only want to keep one of them, if you're going to keep, let's just in this case, hypothetically say you're keeping Kaliev, right, then right. yes, Kapari ends up going down. That only solves half the equation though, Dennis, because that will get, let's just say, Leas Anderson back sure. into the lineup. But then what do you do to get double A in the lineup? You're either going to have to send Kaliev back down or mm-hmm. you're going to have to put a player on waivers. And Grunstrom could be that player. But as we talked about earlier, why uh, a couple episodes back, he made the roster probably because he brings something different than some of the other guys don't bring. And he can Agreed. give you at least partial physical element on nights that Lemieux yeah. is not in there. So don't know. Those are some interesting questions. Uh, on the timing-wise, uh, Leah Sanderson probably not back any earlier than a week. And Double A, from what I understand, probably will start skating with the team next week. That was the latest that I had sort of uh, penciled out from a math perspective. He was expected mm-hmm. to be out four weeks and or seven to 10 days of the season, four weeks from the injury, seven to 10 days into the season. So they'll be uh, at about that mark when they return home from the road trip. Right. And so we'll keep an eye at uh, Toyota Sports Performance Center and see uh, if he returns to skating. Should there be major line changes or what? Dennis, I mentioned earlier, I think there should be some line changes. Uh, I tweeted out my thoughts uh, a couple days ago, but what, what do you think? Stay the course or mix things up a little bit? I got to see more, John. The body of work is in there to, to start flipping things, right? And like maybe in game, John, if you're not getting performances or guys aren't 
delivering or as Todd would say, their motors aren't going, then maybe, but like to start the games, I just, just I haven't seen enough. I can't tell you like a change to a different lineup or different line combinations would really help this team offensively. Okay. Todd made the comment the other day about there were too many passengers. The team is yeah. better. The team has improved, but that they, they don't, they're still not good enough to take on extra passengers on any particular night. People are wondering who are the passengers. There were a couple of replies to that. People have guessed. Do you have, I know we, in the media, you know, after that scrum was over, we were all sort of debating who, who those people were. Do you want to weigh in on that? Who were the passengers? Um, there's one player. I think people know who I'm going to say. I just, you know, Gabe's not delivering the goods here. I, I you know, he, you look at his time on ice. He was supposed to be prominent, even on the third line. You know, all the things, less pressure on him, whatever, like new attitude. Uh, I, I just, he's, he's not delivering for Todd. Maybe it's a coach player situation where maybe he can't deliver for this coach. I don't know, but that's, one of the guys in Kachev, really, but he's that Kachev isn't that motor guy. He isn't that heavy type of guy. So he's a quiet player. So when he's not delivering, he looks extra quiet. So maybe that it was certainly that that third line was was brought into question when you look at that time yeah. on ice, John. And I don't want to beat up Gabe too much because people accusing me of me not liking him and whatever. But I think it's just it's just based on performance. Yeah, the third line has not delivered, and and I think unfortunately the expectations yet again were raised substantially during the preseason because right. that third line back when Leas was healthy, that third line was so effective, so electric, so dynamic, so fun to watch and so effective in the preseason. And you had Todd McClellan, even on our program, talking up Gabe Velarde and how he had improved and he liked what he saw in the preseason. And it looked like, okay, here we go. And then kind of flat from that third line over the first three games. So you're right, Dennis, it, it, it's a little too early, no reason to panic. And no. it only takes one or two games to sort of change everybody's mind. Everybody's on an emotional roller coaster no, right now. Already. Uh, <laughs> but it would be nice if the Kings could, you know, have some strong performances in these uh, final three games over the road trip before they come home next week. And by the way, we haven't even talked yet about on this next homestand, the Canadians will be coming into town and Tyler Toffoli will be making his return. We'll have to talk about the uh, the tribute video that video. should be coming. All sorts of stuff related to uh, to Toff coming back on. And by the way, listeners, if you have not heard the Tyler Toffoli episode, he was on uh, late last season. Um, I think it was before this. Yes, it was before the season ended because it was an off day. I think they mm -hmm. were in Calgary. But uh, Toffoli came on Kings of the Podcast, and it was a wonderful interview. It was absolutely outstanding. He was very open, very loose, very funny, and um if you're a Kings fan and you like the era that uh, Tyler Toffoli was part of the team, encourage you to go back and listen to that. Okay, moving on, DB. We're going to wrap this thing up here. Uh, True-false question. Love these. This is a playoff team. True-false? False. I still say yes. Kempe is a king come the trade deadline. I love that he put the time on there. At 12.01 p.m. So I guess basically after the trade deadline, when after the trade deadline has expired, Adrian Kempe is still an L.A. King. True. I'm going to say False. So mm. we, we can circle back onto that one. Uh, the defensive core will get a legit 2D by the deadline. False. I say false as well. Uh, those, those, are, those are few and far between. They don't just grow on trees. And that deal is out there, but I'm not sure that it'll be made uh, by the deadline. So I'm going mm. to take the easier side of that, and I'm going to say no. The Kings would be thrilled to death if the answer oh, was true. Absolutely. Uh, next up, if the Kings are out of contention around the deadline, Will any of the core four be moved? No. Yeah, I would say false as well. Um, you want to, you want to extend it a little bit further? Yeah. This is not on the board, but of the core four, if 
one of them was to be moved, who is the most likely? The goaltender. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I thought you were going to say 23, but okay, that's fine. Um, true, false. The lo- This is an interesting one. True, false. The loss of McDermott will impact the Kings in a negative way more than we think. Uh, liability on defense, yes, but his mean, tough presence will be missed from this from the young kids. Well, he answered his own question and said for sure, but it's a true-false question, Dennis. The loss of McDermott will impact the Kings in a negative way more than we think. No, because when he gets on the ice, he can't play. Like I, I saw in the one game he got burnt by. I don't know who it was. It, no, it, it's like he had he, – I get that, but he's got to be a better defenseman, so I, I don't think they're – they're less served. And I get the question. I understand it. I understand if you, go to, if you want to say true. But for me, no, the guy doesn't play good enough defense for this for this team. Like You can get away with it on Colorado maybe, but not in Los Angeles the way the team is right now. I'm going to answer the question a little bit differently. And I'm going to say sure. that it does impact the Kings, but it impacts them differently than what you were just talking about. The plan was to move him, and I reported this. The plan was to move him from defenseman to forward. Yeah, yeah. And I think that does impact them because it now puts extra pressure and responsibility on Brendan Lemieux. And it puts pressure on Rob Blake as the general manager because it boxes him in a little bit. Lemieux is his chip. He doesn't have something mm-hmm. to play against that. And so the only opportunity to really put that physical fighting element into the lineup at this point is a Brendan Lemieux. Now, Lemieux has been effective when he was in there. It's really unfortunate because he was playing some of his best hockey with the LA Kings. Small sample size, I understand, but he was playing some of his best hockey with the Kings here uh, over the last month or so, and it's unfortunate that he's in the protocol situation. So hopefully that clears up. Now, but you don't ever in life, Dennis, let alone as a general manager or a coach of an NHL team, you don't like to have limited options. You like mm-hmm. to have multiple sure. options. And I think that's where it hurts the Kings more than anything. People say, well, then why they trade Boko? Boko skating was not going to get him to the NHL, especially no. as a member of the no. LA Kings. So it, Boko's a great guy. He's a great AHL player. He scored a lot of goals in junior, but he was not an option. So the Kings no. had two options. They had McDermott. They had Lemieux. I think it's something they're going to have to address at some point, Dennis. I don't know when. I don't know how, but I think it's something they're going to have to address. So I think the loss of McDermott does at least in the short term, impact them. Uh, Next up, wrapping things up here. um, I've seen some of the Kings players hit, but when they play a bigger, tougher team, the Kings get pushed around and look scared, against the Wild to be specific. If someone deliberately hurts one of the Kings players, I'll bet no one except Lemieux would stick up for anyone. Okay, well, that was not a question. Um, So (laughs) That was a rant. That was was a Twitter rant. Uh, Would you like to respond to that in any way whatsoever, Dennis? I don't think the Kings are playing scared. I think their lack of size will be an issue all season. Um, and we'll see. John, we'll find out this weekend. When they, you know, when they play the Blues, we'll find out. I don't. But I, no player goes out and intentionally looks to hurt someone in, in, a, with, in response to that specific tweet. But, you know, look, the, the coach, the GM have, have – you know, Todd said it. He said, yeah, I know we're not that big. But, you know, that that's the way the team is right now. It, it's funny, John. It, it's gone from, like, remember the championship teams? That was those were big friggin' guys, and then we've yeah. gone to the other end of the spectrum, and we'll see if it works. So I think it's to be determined. And you're right; if it keeps going on like this, and intimidation and physicality is an issue, then Rob will have to do something and and get another ass in here that will help address that. And I would I would just add a couple of things to that real quickly, Dennis. Sure. I would say that the Kings, first of all, are not the only team that quote unquote suffer from this situation right now. If you look around the league. Yeah. Um, that if you look compared to what you just said, compared to the Kings 2012 team, that big, heavier physical team, there aren't a lot of those teams. Those teams are not uh, the dominant 
blueprint yeah. in the National Hockey League right now. So the LA Kings are closer to the norm than they are. While mm -hmm. they might be far from Agreed. what was their norm a decade ago, right. uh, th they are closer to the NHL norm right now um, than you might think. And then I would also say there is something to be said for team uh, defense, or excuse me, team toughness as well. And there are a couple of guys on this team who, while you don't think of them as physical players, they are not afraid to get their nose dirty. And Adrian Kempe is one of those guys that comes to mind. He almost had a fight just the other night. Mm -hmm. Of course, we like when he gets into a physical altercation, does the hair flip and stuff. But uh, you have Carl Grundstrom who can bring a physical element. You know, uh, Dustin Brown on the right night can still bring that, even at his, you know, advanced age. I say that tongue in cheek, uh, you know, being a player in his mid-30s. There are guys on this team uh, that will not tolerate being pushed around when push comes to shove. However, I still think back to the Jerome Ginla addition to this club and the talk at that time that there wasn't enough team toughness and they've lost mm -hmm. some of that. And so I think it is going to have to be addressed. I don't know how, I don't know when, that's what I said, DB, but right. um, I think it's going to have to be addressed at some point. But look, that is not the biggest issue facing the LA Kings. So if you're worried about the LA Kings right now, Dennis, I think there's only one thing that people really should be worried about right now. What's that, John? Scoring. Oh, yeah, offense. Right? And because, you, yeah, John, and you know, I know Todd, and I addressed this with Todd on his first availability about activating the defense. Uh, there's just not enough offensively-minded players on the defense. And like, and if you're going to add to the offense, like, it, it's not going to be Bjornford. It's not going to be Roy. It's not going to be Mikey Anderson. So I, I think that's... That's a challenge. Like you want to have, see that aggressiveness and stuff. So if you if that's why it's going to be like you mentioned, that, John. It comes down like last year. It was the second line that I quite. It's the third line. Yeah. Like that's the key to this team. And you, when you talk to the players, when we talk to Kopi and Brown after games and stuff like that, when we see them, and you know they said, look, the team's deeper. It the the the, the roster's longer, but you know where are we going to get the scoring from? So to me, I think that's the challenge. Is that. I don't think you're going to get much offense from the defense. And so it's going to be incumbent upon that middle six to really produce for them this season. Well, they, from a righty lefty perspective, they don't have the right mix to be able to do this, but you might need to try to find a way to get Sean Walker onto that second pair. Yeah. He was somebody who provided some offense and uh, originally initially, and you haven't seen much of that last year. He was injured. We know that, but maybe getting him off that third pair, getting him some more minutes, getting him into some more offensive situations, maybe sure. that could give them a little bit more. I don't know how you do that. You move Walker to the left side. He can play with Roy, not a problem. But what do you do there on the third pair? You know, you, you, somebody's going to end up on their offside, whether it's Edler, Mata, uh, mm -hmm. or, or Bjornfoot at this particular time. So maybe you find a way to get Austin Strand up and you find a way to have him play on the third pair on the right side. But then, you know, you, you're shuffling between Edler and, yeah. and Bjornfoot at that point, trying to come up with a third pair. So... Hey, that's what you do in the NHL. That's what coaches and general managers spend their time talking sure. about. As McClellan told us, he, he's right now he's in Dallas somewhere, uh, probably in his hotel room with a napkin, trying to figure out pairs and, <laughs> and line combinations. DB, a great episode. Thanks to Glenn Murray for coming on. We had a lot yeah. of fun with Muzz. Uh, big road trip here for the Kings, and uh, we'll see everybody back at Staples Center next weekend. Looking forward to it, Jay. All right. Have a good weekend, everybody. Winners and losers. Turn the pages of my life We're beggars and choosers With all the struggles and the strife I got no reason to turn my head and look the other way We're good and we're evil Which one will I?